Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening. I'm Gordon Woolley. I'm the vice chairman of the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society's Flight Simulation Group. And it's my pleasure and privilege this evening to welcome you to the Society and to introduce the uh, Edwin Link Lecture and our distinguished uh, speaker. And I'm delighted to welcome Wing Commander Dick Eastman as uh, this evening's uh, distinguished speaker. A long and varied career uh, as a, a pilot in the maritime and transport roles, and particularly as an instructor, including the chief uh, flying instructor, with, as you're about to hear, some a fair amount of simulator experience there. One of the great shortcomings I find of the... Um, uh, of the services, having been a, a serviceman myself, is that it doesn't build up in um, a persistent and enduring body of knowledge so that it becomes the intelligent customer uh, for services such as simulation. Uh, Dick's the exception to that. Um, not only does he bring his, uh, his operational and training experience to, um, uh, to bear, but he also had six years uh, in the ministry uh, when he played... Uh, uh, a long and distinguished part again in upgrading and uh, and enhancing the flight simulation support to uh, but to uh, to basic and particularly to operational training and I can speak as a personal beneficiary of that although I do still blame him he did such a good job on the facility I work on that I'm still there um, having intended to retire some time ago but it is too rewarding uh, to do that. And since uh, all that service for the MOD was re um, rewarded and, and acknowledged with the award of the OBE, uh, since leaving the service, uh, Dick has worked in a, uh, a variety of simulation roles in industry, uh, and we're going to hear uh, more about that now. So I'm looking forward with, uh, with considerable pleasure uh, to hearing more of what Dick has to say of his own long history in flight simulation. So will you please join me in welcoming our speaker uh, for the Edwin A. Link uh, lecture this evening, Wing Commander Dick Eastman. Dick. Thank you very much, Gordon. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, something of an honour to be asked to give a lecture on such a remarkable man as Ed Link and try and link him in with my own journey through simulation over the years. Uh, I started off thinking that maybe I'd have my own thoughts on simulation. What's got very interesting, and the more I've read about Mr. Link, is how much he had predated all of us, and so much of the stuff that he originally thought about and introduced, we could almost have talked about this afternoon. The most important thing about Ed Link was that he was an aviator first and foremost. He didn't start off from an engineering point of view, he started off because he was a pilot, and he learned to fly in the days when, uh, and these are his own words, training was ex expensive as it was casual. Um, he became a flying instructor, uh, and there were no syllabus, and you didn't really even do much to get a license. If you'd done a number of hours flying and be gone solo, somebody gave you a license for doing it. An absolutely critical thing, and... Throughout my whole career in simulation, this has hit me, the aircraft is a really terrible place to learn to fly. Time and time again, I'd get the comment from very senior officers, there's no pressure in a simulator. It's not like an aircraft. 
Actually, people do not learn well under pressure. If you want to teach somebody, you teach them in a low-pressure environment, then let them loose in an aeroplane and let them build up the pressure afterwards. And the fact that Ed Link thought of that in the 20s was quite significant. These were his own words. It was a noisy, bumpy, bumpy, uncomfortable, unstable, and generally frightening experience. So learn to fly in a warm and comfortable environment. Uh, and when I spent a lot of time buying simulators, I really took that to heart because it is terribly important. And we all know about his input to instrument flying and the way that uh, the then Army Air Corps was tasked to take the mail around America in fairly bad weather, crashed a remarkable number of aeroplanes in a fairly short time. As a result, realized that blind flying was important. They couldn't fly by the seat of the pants and suddenly started to buy a load of his simulators. I love his first quote here. That was his first flying lesson. But that is the way people learn to fly. Personally, I know flying instructors who are still like that. He was one of the original barnstormers. He wandered around the States selling flights. There's lots of stories of him in the Depression when they had to work out exactly what they thought people could afford to pay pay for a particular flight. Started off at $20, eventually came down to 5 and they'd get some people in their airplane. Amazing thing about him was the penguin principle, which I'd never heard of, really. The French actually invented the penguin principle. They decided that one way of teaching their pilots was to let them get in the airplane, start it up, taxi it around the airfield, but not get airborne. And actually, it's a remarkably good way to learn to fly, because they can get used to the environment and moving their controls about, and eventually they let them launch. And it was said at the end of the First World War that the French had actually were some of the top pilots during the First World War, and that was the way they trained. Interestingly enough, when he invented the first link trailer, he invented it to let people taxi. It was only after he started building it that he thought, oh, actually, you could do some flying in this as well. But his first thoughts were around this so-called penguin principle. Another really important thing was he did think about simulation as a way to teach. And throughout my career in simulation, too often we thought about simulation as a technology. And people do a vast amount of time specifying all the bits and pieces on a simulator, totally forgetting what it's there for. And actually, I really don't care what color the buttons are on the control uh, on the uh, instructor station. Does it improve the actual pilot at the end of his training? And he did some very interesting stuff on fidelity in the beginning because he insisted that his simulators went around on a little motion platform and bounced up and down because flying was uncomfortable and you bounced up and down. Actually, it was quite poor fidelity because if you look at where a link trainer moves, it's around underneath your feet, which is not where you get the motion in an airplane. But the fact it does move is quite important. I first met or came in contact with Link when I started flying at RAF Syaston back in 1968 on a Jet Provost. Remarkable days when we did all through jet training. One of the most remarkable things about Syaston was almost all the ground crew were female. And that's the 1970 badminton team. At this stage, my wife pointed out that this lecture was about simulation, not stimulation. So I have to move on to 
The second most important thing I learned at Syaston, which was about flying. And I dug up my logbook from Syaston, my first ever logbook, and the column on the left is actually all around the link trainer. And it was the link D, D4 Mark IIA simulator. And actually, I've got 14 hours and 30 minutes, which was about 10% of the flying, which was a fairly common uh, percentage in the old days. People did about 10% of their course in a simulator. I thought I'd better find out something about the D4 simulator. One of the things I really found out, there is very little history left on simulation. A lot of it has been lost. And Barry Tomlinson, who is currently trying to find out something about the history of simulation, if any of you have got any good information, he would probably love it. But the D4 was actually built on a license from Link, and the original D4 Mark 1s were for the Piston Provost, and the D4 Mark 2s were for the Jet Provost. So it was actually quite good in realism. It had something resembling a Jet Provost instrument panel, and it had a control column rather than the wheel, and sadly it didn't have wings. And that's roughly what it looked like. I was reminded, looking at the logbook, um, how rudimentary, even in the late 60s, flying was. QGH to ACR-7 were the sort of letdowns we did. There was no area radar. There was no search radar. There was no precision radar. We would run, wander around merrily above cloud. And uh, there were two whole jets, provost squadrons, flying off one station, so there were a lot of us wandering around innocently above cloud. You'd home to the overhead... Air traffic would send you out on a heading, pick you up on DF, do a lot of sums on the ground, which was jolly nice of them, turn you inbound, and eventually try and find you on a non-precision radar where they just told you what height you should be at each range, and eventually you popped out of cloud. The thought of all these aircraft wandering around in cloud now without radar is a bit surprising. But we never had near misses because we couldn't see each other because we were in cloud. Uh, we did a lot of limited panel stuff. And limited panel then was genuine lim limited panel because it had a standby altimeter. It had an old compass, which was just free turning. And we had a turn and slip. And if you really didn't know what you were doing with those, you could get lost very quickly. And we did flame out control descent through cloud, again, purely on DF, big spiral, done with controllers on the ground, on standby instruments. Uh, and it was jolly scary stuff. And all these uh, D4 simulators were built under license. We eventually found out that there was a little company called Air Training Limited, based up in Aylesbury, who produced well, probably up to 100 of these things, who eventually morphed into Redifon and Rediffusion and got fairly serious in the training world up in Aylesbury. So that's where that company came from. Posh simulator accommodation in those days. An old hut. But I learned quite a lot about simulation from flying around in this old link trainer. The most important thing I found out at a very early age is the instructor is actually more important than the device. I'd much rather have a really good instructor and a not very uh, good training device than the world's best training device and a rubbish instructor. And the instructors we had were old Polish master pilots. Couldn't understand a word they were saying because they were Polish, but they were wonderful guys. They'd tell us great stories about Spitfires and the Second World War. Uh, and we learned a lot from them. And they were also perfectly willing to hit you around over the head with a ruler if you got it wrong. Uh, so you learned about instrument flying the hard way. 
it really did teach you the importance of instrument flying because you worked on very, very limited instruments in a very difficult environment. Uh, whether you do it without the simulator, I don't know, but I would hate to have gone and ran some of these procedures with an instructor shouting at me in the first place. Our instructors were not necessarily sympathetic in those days. The need for fidelity, actually it was rather nice that they, uh, they weren't real old link trainers, they were adopted for the jet provost, so the instruments did actually work. And so you did learn all about the instruments. And it did teach you about learning under pressure because it was much lower pressure with these nice old master pilots chatting to you than the rather nicely people. And Ed Strawn used to be an instructor at Syaston, so they had some really nasty people there in those days. Oddly enough, I then went forth and commanded a tank in Germany. Don't ask me how that happened, but I was a tank commander on the 4th fourth, uh, fourth Tank Regiment in Germany. I only mention that because we had a simulator there as well. It was a sand pit, and it had a CO3 gun in, and you learned how to do all the fire control orders for a tank sitting in a sand pit. And actually, it was damn good, because if you got the fire control orders wrong, you could make a real mess. I missed the target by 10 miles once. But I only got away with it because I was really an Air Force officer. It did have an RBF roundel on the side of my uh, chieftain in those days. So I learned about targeted fidelity, because this sand pit in a CO3... And a very nasty sergeant, by the way, the importance of the instructor. You didn't dare get the fire control orders wrong because the instructor, again, would probably hit you with his stick. But simulators were, in those days, and still are, a superb way of learning drills and procedures. And you did feel much more comfortable, even wandering around in your tank, when you knew how to give the fire control orders in a fairly authoritative fashion. We then went round and flew a whole number of analogue simulators. Uh, the NAT had quite a good analogue simulator. It was uh, in some sort of caravan on the side of the airfield. The Hunter, or the one on the uh, right, one of the things you learned about the Hunter was every single Hunter had its controls in a completely different place. Not as two single Hunters on the whole squadron had the armament switch in the same place. So learning the checks in the simulator wasn't that good because they were all different anyway. And there are hardly any pictures of any lightning simulators left, but that's supposed to be a lightning simulator at the bottom. But again, you could never have flown any of those aircraft without a simulator. So they, it, in those days, simulators were a great learning tool for drills and procedures, undoubtedly. If you tried to learn the radar principles of a lightning in the air, it would take new years. Huge limitation of having no visual system on a simulator. It was no fun. That was the worst thing about this sort of simulator was they were no fun because there was no visual. Um, they did try and do the field fit function bit inside so you could accustom and something like the NAT, that was important. Again, most of your work was concentrated on instrument flying because you couldn't do something like weaponry and gunnery because you couldn't put target on anything. And again, it drove me back to the importance of the instructor. Most of the instructors on these were fairly bitter, fed-up guys who didn't want to be simulator instructors, made it perfectly clear they didn't want to be there, and probably ruined a whole lot of the training experience. <clears throat> it was interesting that some of the best um, fighter pilots in the world are probably the Israelis. They've got one of the worst training systems you've ever seen. Ancient old airplanes, no simulators, 
but the instructors are out of this world because they're all operational pilots, and once a week they go back and actually drop bombs on people. And you can't actually be a squadron commander in the Israeli Air Force unless you've commanded a training squadron. So their instructors are damn good. And the fact they were training on A4s and what were effectively Fugo Magisters a couple of years ago didn't stop them turning out superb fighter pilots. I kept coming back my whole career through simulation. This importance of the instructor keeps rearing its head at you. Again, don't ask why, but having flown lightnings and things, I ended up on this. It was something to do with doctors. Uh, a couple of very fascinating tours flying Andovers around the world. Uh, finding out there were things called navigators. The first time I flew with a navigator, he said, you're off the center line of the runway and off the airway. And I said, no, I'm not. My VORs say I'm on the center line. And the entire nav bag and its contents were placed over my head. This voice from outside the nav bag said, navigate your own something aircraft then. And the captain gave me a lesson in resource management. <laughs> but I really did learn the fact that we used to fly around in these and fail the engine at 100 feet ourselves. Uh, failing the engine, learn to do engine failures in the real aircraft, even with an aircraft like this, is really not a very clever thing to do. So a simulator really is worth its weight in gold in training terms. I then got into simulation seriously when I went to Malta. And uh, again, I'm not quite sure how I managed it, but I did a couple of years on Nimrods, and I did it flying out of Malta, which is uh, something of a privilege, to put it mildly. And the simulator for uh, Malta was obviously in, in loss, because the military always managed to put their simulator somewhere near the operational aircraft. It was actually due with Don Mintoff. He flew us, flew us out of Malta, and when we were allowed back in, we had to sign a, a bit of paper saying that we'd hand every building over in the state we left it. So we'd have had to leave in the simulator. We did that because the first time they threw us out, the airmen went around and poured toilet, uh, concrete in all the toilets, knocked out all the runway lights. And a year later, when we were allowed to go back in, we had to fix it all again. Um, but the Nimrod was the first time I realized how good a simulator could be. That's not quite a Nimrod simulator at the top, a pilot simulator. It was a bit older than that. It just had uh, monitors as the visual system. And it was superb. Because the instructors on the Nimrod had to be B-category crews, above-average crews, before you were allowed to be an instructor. So the simulator, and all of our instruction in the simulator was given by our flying instructors who would then take us flying. So we did all the conversion, even in the 70s, in a simulator. And I would argue, however much you improved a flight simulator from those days, you wouldn't be able to take anything out of the syllabus. It had visual, you could land it, you could fly it around... The Nimrod was a real pig to fly because it had flying controls that were run by a massive focus and jacks. Uh, and at the end of it, you could fly a Nimrod perfectly well after a simulator course. So that's the first time I thought, well, simulators aren't bad. <coughs> Better still, it had a crew train at the back. That's the most important part of the Nimrod, which was the galley. And in terms of fidelity, they didn't have a galley in the simulator, which when you did six-hour trips was a real pain. Uh, and you had to take soft drinks in with you because you weren't allowed out the simulator for the six hours that you were on task. It's drawn like that specifically because one of the big problems with the Nimrod was they could make the front end and a different company made the back end, but the ICD never worked, so they could never actually make the front end and back end fly together. 
you would guarantee every time you launched off, you'd be flying around at a 1,000 feet at the front. The poor people down the back were 2,000 feet under the water, which is what that's meant to represent, flying in a different direction. So in terms of fidelity, we then found out the pilots weren't very important people because at the front of the crew trainer, they put a little prison cell and they gave the pilots three dials. One gave you height, one gave you speed, and one gave you heading. And the navigator would tell you what speed and heading he wanted, and that's all you had to do. You realized that actually when you flew the Nimrod, the pilot was not necessarily an important person. But it is important that uh, I did find out a full mission simulator can actually teach you to fly an aeroplane. It was the first time I came across a synthetic environment. People talk about synthetic environments as if they're new things. In the Nimrod, we had radar, we had underwater sensors, we had ESM, we had magnetic anomaly detection, and the whole underwater environment with submarines, ships, was very complex. And the whole lot were modelled with ten guys down the back all interacting in the same underwater model. That was a synthetic environment. And in terms of the Nimrod, you learnt more in the simulator than you could ever learn in the actually flying. I'd actually been flying the Nimrod for two weeks, wondering why we were flying around non-directional beacons in the ocean, which I didn't understand before somebody pointed out we were talking about nuclear depth bombs. It was a, it was a fairly world, weird, secretive world. But if you're carrying a nuclear depth bomb on the aircraft, you really couldn't go and practice it for real. So we had to do all of that in the simulator. And you had to get it right. It was around the time in my life where you realized that procedure was everything, because every six months we had to go and do a load X with the Americans picking up the nuclear bomb. It was surrounded by American security guards with an IQ in the minus figures. <laughs> and if you got anything wrong, they would shoot you. Because if you were operating near a nuclear weapon and you made a mistake, you were liable to be shot. We took it very seriously. So we had the importance of interface control documentation and trying to get two parts of a simulator flying together and probably not trying to get two different companies to build two different ends of a simulator and get them to work together. And it really put us pilots in our place. But it was a superb simulator. And while we're talking of synthetic environments, this was one of Ed Link's most wonderful toys. During the Second World War, he invented the Link Celestial Trainer. It's actually a bomber trainer, but he sold it to Britain in the early uh, 40s before the Americans were allowed to export war material. So he couldn't call it a bomber trainer, it was called a Celestial Trainer. The RAF ordered quite a lot of these. They only ever bought about 10 over, I believe, and most were sold back to the Americans who use them widely. But in the middle, there is a crew compartment, which is a proper crew trainer. It's got a projected visual underneath, so the navigator could actually practice his navigating on a map. And uh, the visual picture was reversed. At the right stage, the bomb aimer could take over with his bomb sight. The navigator had a big rotating dome sitting on the top, which had 300-odd stars in the right position, and motored around so he could learn to do astro inside this big dome. So the navigator would do all his basic uh, navigation across to the target on the astro. Uh, and it was the nearest I've seen to a full crew chain. It was a synthetic environment of the early 40s. 
And he built it for $85,000, which I thought was rather wonderful. Even on today's sum, that's less than a million pounds. Uh, and I suppose it was the first thing that did CRM training. But it was specifically brought in to get the crews to get to work together. And if you look at the bottom figure, the IRF stated at the time that they cost, cut the cost of training their bomber crews by 50%. I never knew he built this. It was only when I pulled out books I had link, and there's hardly any record of them left. You can't find a real picture on an RAF station where they had one of these built. So you think the number of RAF crews went through and the number of Commonwealth crews in the States, and there's no model of it left anywhere. It is an incredible piece of kit to look at. So Link didn't only build black boxes. He invented the first synthetic environment where you could actually navigate, bomb aim, do astro and the pilot command at the same time. Outstanding man. I then wandered off and actually trained as a flying instructor on the Hawk, but I'll come back to that in a minute, because my first real job in simulation was commanding the Jaguar simulation squadron at Lossiemouth. And this is where you really realize how much uh, simulation has changed. They were outstanding simulators, without any doubt. The computer room was twice the size of this room. The heating or the cooling requirements in the computer room were incredible. It ran off a huge um, map. So it was probably the shortest career of all time, but there was a whole stage where people built these lovely maps on the ground that the camera flew over, model boards. The two rooms for that were three times the size of this. When we were fully up and running, we used half of the entire electricity at RAF Lossiemouth. Uh, I had a hundred simulator technicians to run three simulators. We had the simulator school as well, but a hundred simulator technicians. The instructor console was huge. It replicated the aircraft, uh, but when you think people would do that now on one screen, we used to sit round and play with all sorts of bits of the aircraft in these huge instructor consoles. And I learned a huge amount from it. The importance of visual against motion was one. Because it had a visual, you could teach bomb aiming. You could actually teach gunnery. So you could go through the entire procedure of flying an aircraft in a flight simulator for the first time. And to convert to the Jaguar, you would do 10 trips in this and then one or possibly two trips in the aircraft if you're an experienced pilot. On my second ever Jaguar trip, I'd managed to dump the entire head-up display and panicked. I'd never used one in my life, but I got so used to it in 10 hours in the simulator, the thought I didn't have one anymore frightened the daylights out of me. Interestingly, I did a trial for three months with a motion and every single guy that came in, we failed the motion halfway through the sortie. And at the end of it, asked them what they thought of the motion. Everybody said it was wonderful. Nobody picked up for three months, so we'd failed the motion. The visual, if it's working, is so powerful, it will overcome the motion cues on this sort of device. But I had these wonderful simulators, these wonderful technicians, and my instructors were failed VC-10 co-pilots that nobody could work out what to do with. And it was wasted. We wasted half of the effect of buying these enormous simulators by having instructors who had never flown a Jaguar. But we still managed to download a huge amount of training. 
You can do about a third of all your training on the Jaguar in these simulators. And I learned how wonderful Simtex were, the simulator technicians. Brilliantly trained guys. Every other morning, some corporal would walk into my office with this pad full of software and say, oh, I've written this bit of software, it'll make this happen. And I'd look sagely at this corporal and say, yes, I'll read it. Call my warrant officer and say, what the hell is this about? And he'd explain what this software was. But it did have the advantage I could then go and fly the aircraft and tell him whether it worked. I think I was the least qualified person in my entire squadron. Every one of my corporals was better qualified than I was. I also learned the warrant officers were vital. On my second day, my warrant officer came in and said, give me your shoes, sir. What? He came back an hour later with brand new shoes, properly polished, and said, it's a bad example to my airman to have bad shoes, sir. Wear new ones from now on. And uh, he ran my life after that. <laughs> but I did also learn that flying a simulator is not necessarily quite like flying an aircraft because I had one of my corporals who did the air tests every morning. And I've never seen anybody fly a Jaguar the way he did. He was brilliant. He was so good that one day I took him flying. I put him in the back of a Jaguar, got to the end of the ILS and said, you can do this, you've done it in the simulator. Five seconds later, we were upside down with a scream coming from the back, which I actually felt quite good about. Uh, he really, unless you've been in, put in the environment with a helmet and all the noise and shaking, you can't just learn to fly in a simulator. In between flying all this, I spent about 3,000 hours flying the Hawk. And we started off on the Hawk with an old procedure trainer, effectively. And again, we did about 10% of our training on, the, on it. Wonderful for the students, because at least they knew their checks when they started flying. It had no visual system. So we all hated it with a passion. Back in the early um, in 1990, as I got down there, we did a big TNA on the Hawk. And somebody came up with the conclusion that given modern simulators, the Hawk course could be cut from 170 to 100 hours. The MOD being the MOD forgot the first three words. <laughs> this is true. Cut the Hawk course, and then when we said, where are the simulators, they said, what? No, we haven't got any money for that. We've just cut the course. Uh, it was one of my first jobs was to get the funding to put the simulators into place. But because we then built Hawk simulators with domes, we managed to get the students to over a third of all their flying in the simulators. And it improved the quality of training dramatically. Because instead of going to the range for the first time and the instructor saying, that's a target, bang, bang, pull off, and you hadn't got a clue what he'd done, you could do everything in slow time and let the guy really understand what you were trying to teach him. Once you have a dome simulator with decent instructors, and we had really good instructors in it, simulators really came into their own. But again, research. We asked and said, you're going to end up, you're going to have all these students who have flown these lovely old simulators, and now you've got another batch with these new ones. Do the research and find out the difference. Two years later, when I went back to Valley, I said, what was the result of the research? And they said, oh, we haven't started it yet. We're just waiting to get the new devices worked up. They'd totally lost the previous courses, so nobody ever did any research into the effectiveness of this new device. But they do offer an incredible learning environment. Hawks in a dome. As Gordon said, I then disappeared into main building into operational requirements for six years. And in those six years, we bought a lot of simulators. 
fact, we bought so many that we probably ruined the simulation industry because there haven't been many to buy since. That's a fairly good record of devices to pick up in six years. It was probably because I spent the first two years being baffled by a whole system, and then I learned how to play it. And we began to get funding, and we got a lot of stuff came in very quickly. But it was very useful because I learned a lot of lessons while all that was going on. We bought the Harrier. Harrier simulators, we weren't going to buy any two-seat Harriers because the Harrier simulator was going to be so wonderful that the guys wouldn't need a two-seat aircraft, which explains why we had to buy 10 two-seaters a bit later. We went for absolute cutting-edge technology, new system, came from Link, actually. Um, I tracked you could only get 10 degrees of high resolution, so we tracked the pilot's eye, and this little golf ball went about where he was looking. Third of pilots, they couldn't eye track. Uh, never worked. Set simulation back probably about five, ten years in the Air Force's view because people had promised them this simulator that would do all this, and we couldn't make it work. No excuse whatsoever in the world of simulation for buying anything that's not tried and tested. We bought a brand new visual system for the VC-10. Horror, because everybody said, well, actually, the VC-10 simulator's not very good. The latency is awful. The flying controls don't quite feel like the uh, aircraft. And when we put a new visual in, everybody's going to suddenly realize that this simulator's no good. Exact opposite happened. Because the pilots had this wonderful visual, they didn't care about all this stuff down here. They were looking at the picture, and they loved it. The power of the visual is quite fantastic. But they really enjoyed flying the VC-10 and never picked up the fact that, actually, it was a very old simulator that we put a new visual system on. Typhoon. We argued for years about whether to put motion on the Typhoon platform, and in the end, we tried studies, we tried reports, they all contradicted each other, so we said, no, we won't do it. Uh, largely on cost, but basically because with an aircraft like the Typhoon, you can't simulate 360 degrees a second rate of roll. Uh, why try it? And actually, because the visual is so good, you probably won't notice anyway. But I am a bit for motion queuing in seats. But the Typhoon probably taught the same lesson as the Harrier. We went for an incredibly complex, very expensive Typhoon um, solution, which my office argued frantically against. And the only thing that saved it, it came in about eight years late, but so did the aircraft. Uh, but it is very expensive, and the Typhoon simulators are already obsolete, effectively. Training can be a service. We did learn at that period you can sell training. You don't have to sell simulators, you can sell training, which is why we did some of the big PFI projects. Interestingly, I got summoned to the Treasury um, about three months ago because they were doing a report on PFI, and I'd done all these original PFI contracts. And the Treasury were quite nasty and said, some of these PFI contracts are costing us a lot of money, and this was not value for money going down the PFI route. Uh, uh, stop. We only ever had funding, for example, with a medium sport helicopter. We only had funding in the MOD for two helicopters. We went down the PFI route and they ended up with six. I just said, do you know that last year those devices flew over 10,000 hours? 
And that's probably equivalent to 30 aircraft. Is that expensive? Is a small amount of money on a, on a simulator worth 30-odd aircraft that you'd have to buy to replace it? And the um, head of the Joint Helicopter Force, the commander of the, uh, said at the time, without the simulators, he could not have maintained his aircraft in two theatres at the same time. There were not enough Chinooks to do it. So we argue and argue about cost, but something like the PFI facilities, the attack helicopter, GR4, Hawk, MSH, incredible value for money if you work out how many aircraft they've replaced. Really learned the senior officers hate simulators. Uh, one senior officer, when I went to CNC actually, I told her I needed half an hour off each helicopter pilot to fund a seeking simulator that over my dead body, will you ever do that? Get out of my office. He crashed the message bit two weeks later, he should have had a simulator. Um, appropriate fidelity is important. If you buy an aircraft now without a simulator, and both the Apache and GR4 training systems came in very late because people took the training funding out, you waste time. We had synthetic environments back in the 90s, and we should have exploited them more by now. But the only reason anybody buys simulators ultimately, as Ed Link proved years ago, is it saves money. Saves lives, it saves aircraft, but ultimately it's all about saving money. Industry was a hell of an experience after the MOD. Um, I spent more time in industry working with maritime and the Command Arms Tactics Trainer, the Maritime and Army Systems that I did in air. Definitely learned very quickly the trainee is not considered as sexy because it doesn't bring as much money as a typhoon. But it is a vital part of military capability. Really important figure. 7.2 billion of the entire defense budget, over 20% of the entire defense budget is actually spent on training. And if we treated that coherently, it could save a lot of money. But the real lesson I still took out of it and still will is the output from training isn't bits of equipment and simulators and buildings. It's trained people or trained teams. And I still worry when I talk around the industry that people do get obsessed sometimes with technology and not about the people. So come back to Ed Link, who started all this. He conceived his first simulator effectively to make tra uh, pilot training affordable. And that's what they still are. Flight trainers still make flight training affordable and still make training affordable. Flight simulators have undoubtedly revolutionized safety. I, I, I sit in horror at failing engines at 100 feet on a big aircraft. And that was a lesson that Ed learned in the uh, 30s when he suddenly started selling his, uh, his simulators properly around the US mail solution. Simulators now are revolutionizing mission training. Well, I guess he thought of that with his celestial nav trainer in the 40s. Simulators only need appropriate fidelity. He was very keen on that. He wanted fidelity, but he didn't want to... Uh, he argued for ages with the USAF about the amount of fidelity that he needed on motion. Um, and he had very strong beliefs that you did not have to go so far. But he didn't have a uh, visual. The instructor is more important than technology. He started off as a flying instructor. And we come back to his, beside being expensive, the aircraft was a terrible place to learn to fly. 
It was generally frightening. Uh, and it was his belief very strongly that the best place to learn to fly was in a warm and cosy classroom atmosphere. And I would support that 100%. And if we took one thing away and one thing only, every time anybody says, but a simulator's not real and doesn't put people under pressure, exactly right. It should not put people under pressure. You should use it to teach. And the biggest, biggest lesson we can still learn from Ed now is that flight simulation is about training at an appropriate cost, fidelity, and safety. It's not just about technology, it's about training. And that brings us to the end, apart from the one bit of where flight simulation will go next. You might have heard some of it this afternoon, but in pure technology terms, huge devices, it's probably gone as far as it can go. We can buy anything today of the right fidelity to teach people to fly any type of platform, UAVs to typhoons. The big gap is really around mission training and gaming will take over that sort of world. Gaming is definitely the way forward because it is the only way where you can get the people on the ground to interact with you. Artificial intelligence. And people are spending so much on building gaming solutions for kids that we will always follow that gaming practice. And we are all of a generation, as I look around, sadly we are all about the same level, where gaming is not maybe our natural element. But it is the natural element of Generation Y who are now coming up into the training world. They have grown up in the digital world. They can take games, they can change them, they can adapt them, they can use them for mission rehearsal. It is their world, and it's a way they will want to learn. So the future is probably around gaming, and the technology of big simulation is probably as advanced as it needs to be. And that's my 44-year journey through simulation, and something about Ed Link. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick has kindly agreed to uh, take any questions or comments, so uh, Mark and I will be happy to take the microphones around. Do you have anything to say? Please introduce yourself. Uh, Mike Collin, Cranfield Aerospace. <clears throat> it's a comment, not a question. I was a desk officer in MOD when uh, we were endeavouring to marry the back end, <coughs> the back end of the Nimrod with the front end. First of all, the back end was highly complex, the front considerably less complex, but the prime contractor was the manufacturer of the front end and the, and, and the supporting uh, manufacturer um, was uh, faced with the difficult task of uh, achieving the integration. And I just always remember and laugh, and I think it was in air clues, but there was a lovely cartoon of the back-end simulator with a square plug um, receiver and to the left was the flight simulator with a three-pin round plug. <laughs> it was very true. I, they, they were one, it was the first time genuinely that I realised that it was much more complex to run the synthetic environment from the back and being a pilot was fairly easy. 
I think I can add that being one of the engineers that worked on the second generation of Nimrod simulators, the front end, I thought the front end was really complicated and the back end, well, why did we need it? So, Any other questions? Hello, uh, Ed Oates um, from uh, Merlin Mark 1 Training Facility. Uh, I've often heard uh, train systems referred to as training pipelines. Um, do you have any views on training flows and the contribution of simulators to flow rather than cost or safety? quite often upset me really because I did do one tour when I was a poster when I was trying to manage flow and eventually somebody said I will let industry do it because the Air Force keep mucking it up Um, but flow is absolutely essential and I don't think even now we have fully modelled the flow of people through but if you look at the Merlin the Air Force has managed to train all the Merlin guys and now somebody's saying well the Navy are going to take the Merlin and don't want the Air Force pilots so every time you model flow, somebody throws a nuclear bomb in the middle of the program halfway through and changes everything. Um, but to teach people with a coherent syllabus from one end to the other, rather than in little discrete blocks, is really important. Uh, Ian Strawn, speaking in my capacity as an ex Syaston flying instructor. I don't think Dick and I flew together, probably fortunately for him. I was also the link training instructor and where I used to go down to Ellsbury and drink lots of beer and it was funding the program for the link trainer. But we, we tend to lose some of the stories that went on in those days. And when I was trained on the link trainer, Dick may remember, there was a turbulence control, which basically were, was a cam which turned round and at random, it used to blow air into one of the four bellows in some sort of sequence. And it was on the far side of the cockpit, which was away from where the flight sergeant or the warrant officer was controlling it. And at my base, we found there was a door. I was a student. And we opened the door, we'd lift the turbulence control, turn it to full turbulence, and get out of the door. And neither the student nor the guy operating the simulator would realise what was going on. And halfway down the approach... You can imagine what happened. Now, the staff, of course, found out that this was happening, and we all got a monumental bollocking, and they locked the door. I don't know whether you remember that. <laughs> but that was the link, that was the link trainer. Yeah. Crude, crude, but it worked. Going oh, the turbulence to... control was something else. It was another reason to get on well with the instructors, because <laughs> you upset them. It was set to fall for the whole trip. Going back to the Nimrod, I did actually fly the, the Mark I. It was a Redifon simulator. And, of course, you were told in those days, of course, the simulator Dutch rolls on the approach. That's just the simulator. It's not, don't worry about that. The aircraft doesn't do that. I think we're a bit better now. Andrew Dravinger, um, independent journalist. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. It, uh, excellent. I found it very interesting. Um, your comment about being grilled by the um, MOD about the PFIs is something that I've, I've come across. Um, how would you, with your experience, um, sort of reflect on the PFI move and where it has brought us today? And where do you, in your experience, feel that we ought to develop it into tomorrow? Um, you know, given the standpoint where we are today, in contrast perhaps to other international um, forces. PFI has had a very bad press in a number of areas. Uh, I am still convinced, having looked at it, that the four training PF, five training PFIs that we did at the time were hugely great, good value for money because of the limitations we had then. And basically because they forced the companies that did them to bring in really good technology and really good instructors. 
And all of those companies employed first-class instructors that the MOD would never have done. The MOD has always brought in sort of retired officers at 20K and wondered why they're not very good. So we've got first-class devices, well-maintained, well-looked-after. If you went back today and redid the investment appraisal, they are worth their weight in gold. Buying training is still the best way of doing it. Define the training that you want and let companies bid against that with different solutions, which is always difficult for the MOD, we know, because then you end up trying to compare apples and pears and it doesn't work. But you should still be able to contract for output because you will get better instructors and better capability in the long term. I'm going to fall out with my uh, Abbeywood colleagues shortly. <laughs> Any other questions or, or comments anyone would like to make before we... Uh, there's one down here. Hang on a minute. Thank you very much. I'm Gary Carford. I'm an instructor with Boeing Training and Flight Services. And one comment you made about the value of instructors. Now, I teach in two different simulators from different manufacturers. One of them is an absolute delight. It's somebody's thought about the instructor. The other one is a nightmare. Whoever designed the instructor operation station had never, ever instructed his life, and it's actually terrible. So why can't advice from instructors be taken in construction of simulators? I think it's one of the uh, one possible advantages of the PFI ones is instructors did help us design the stations. Uh, when I look back at some of the old analog stations where there were buttons everywhere, I agree it was a problem. Um, I can think of no good reason why an instructor wouldn't design it because I never saw an iOS that was designed by other people that was ever used by an instructor in the way it was designed. Uh, and I have seen some modern ones where the instructors can amend the iOS and make it work the way they want it to. But certainly with the Jaguar, we didn't, never used more than 10% of the functionality on that iOS. We all had our own way of playing with it. Hello, Roger Lloyd, uh, an ex, uh, uh, sorry, flight, flight command or OC Phantom Flight Simulator at RAF Watersham in the late 80s. Um, I had a thoroughly enjoyable time there. And uh, I suppose uh, our Phantom Simulator was really excellent because although it didn't have visual, it had the radar, uh, radar screen in the front, radar screen in the back, and um, uh, it allowed really to, to you to do um, a full mission um, at night, uh, and it was most effective indeed. And uh, I only have high praise for, for that particular simulator. It came in with the Royal Navy. Uh, they did have the visual system uh, initially, um, but that wasn't particularly useful for um, uh, for our air-to-air -air, uh, side. But uh, I just thought I'd add my words and say what an excellent system it was and how successful we were in training our crews. I, I, I have no doubt, and I've I flown the Phantom Simulator, um, the, the GR1 simulators at the time with no visual, the addition of the visual to them allowed you to extend the training task and actually made them rather more fun. You could actually, even in something like the Phantom, teach the landing, takeoff, emergencies in the circuit uh, in a far more realistic way, and it just allowed more download of training to a device. But, yes, for what they did, I, the lightning simulator in the 60s was a really good simulator. You could learn to use the radar and the weapons system on it, and you couldn't learn it in the aircraft. But you couldn't learn to land the aircraft. 
So it was that additional bit of being able to fly as well. I'm wondering whether you could tell us something about the relevance of uh, gaming-type uh, simulators to uh, ab initio training. To? Gaming-type simulators for ab initio flight training. For instance... Hey, ab initio instance. flight training has always been a question about how far you take simulators anyway. Ed Link actually had one of his great business plans was to sell a simulator to every secondary school in the U.S., because he believed that the way that the world would go is with new, huge numbers of pilots. And he had a whole business plan based on selling cheap training devices to every high school. Didn't work. Uh, he nearly bankrupted his company at the time, funnily enough. Um, but I, I do Abinitio training now. And most guys who come in to do Abinitio training have already played on their laptops and on their PCs and on their gaming devices. And they know how all the instruments work. They understand a bit about the RT. They've got a background flying that none of us ever had when we started to fly. Actually, it's jolly dangerous, because the one thing they won't do is look out the window. As soon as you get airborne, they go, straight down at the attitude indicator, and you've got to hit them over the head and fail the attitude indicator. Otherwise, they become obsessed by it, and they won't learn to operate in the environment. Um... But in pure terms of gaming, just about every kid that comes to fly now has got airways games, has got uh, fighter pilot games. They use it anyway. Uh, as a valley not long ago, but well, gaming started. The students would be in their rooms playing fighter pilot against each other rather than go to the bar, fighting the daylights out of me. Um, but these kids are really good with games, and they will learn. We had another case... Uh, uh, Two years ago, we were doing a program, and some senior guy said, we have the lock list program, so until they've done this lesson on the computer, they can't open the next one. They must do it sequentially. Why, why is that? Well, if they don't do it sequentially, we can't test it. Uh, you don't understand. Every kid now, as soon as they've done the lesson, they'll put it on Facebook. Everybody going to do the next course will have seen that course on Facebook. They'll have discussed it with each other online. They'll even know what the instructors drink before they turn up. They know everything that they're going to do on the next course already. These kids are way above anything that most of us understand. So they do play games. Um, I think things like VBS2 are probably more appropriate for the operational world because you get the motion of the people on the ground and the artificial intelligence. Uh, most simulators now won't give you the targets moving the way that we see in Afghanistan. So I've seen a lot of VBS2 stuff, and it is superb. Um, but don't worry about kids. They will learn ab initio stuff on their laptops faster than we can teach it. Thank you. I think that's actually quite an appropriate uh, point. Uh, sorry, just to introduce myself. I'm Mark Dransfield, Chairman of the Flight Simulation Group. Um, and I think we've been very privileged today, uh, this evening, to hear an excellent lecture from Dick. Um, and, and I agree very much with your comment that maybe we have come to a plateau in terms of simulation technology. And now, as the last question demonstrated, maybe the step change in the way we teach and the way we learn and, and the abilities of the students coming out today is, is what's going to change next. Um, but it's, it's a great honor for us to uh, have had Dick come here and speak tonight uh, in, I think it's our sixth uh, series of uh, the Edling Lecture. Uh, and I'm sure... Uh, you'd like to join me uh, once again 
in saying a huge thank you to Dick for uh, an excellent lecture tonight. Thank you.